0: From NPR, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. As California moves towards restrictions on global warming gases from cars, some car makers warn consumers will have to pick up the tab. Our analysis is that the average cost of cars
1: would go up by about $3,000 in order to comply with these regulations by using these kinds of
0: technologies across the board. But others say those costs are exaggerated. It's the fight over the sticker price for a cleaner car, this week on Living on Earth. Also, after the election, some see a mandate for the market-based approach to the environment favored by President Bush, but not everyone agrees.
2: The presidential election nationally was not a referendum on the environment, and so I don't think that the Bush administration should take it as such in their second term. I don't believe that the people gave them a mandate to roll back and weaken environmental protections.
0: Those stories and more are coming up, so stick around.
3: Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm.
0: From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. California has made new rules that require passenger vehicles to reduce their emissions of global warming gases such as carbon dioxide and air conditioning chemicals by some thirty percent over the next twelve years. Now, assuming the measures survive expected court challenges, it means that car makers will be compelled to redesign SUVs like the Ford Explorer and other popular light trucks and cars. All this will cost consumers a lot of money. The car makers contend, but some environmental activists aren't so sure. The Union of Concerned Scientists has calculated that modifications that cut global warming gas emissions by as much as 40 percent will be offset by savings at the pump. Joining me now are two consulting engineers with diverse views on this debate. Louise Bedsworth is a vehicles analyst with the Union of Concerned Scientists in Berkeley, California. Louise, hello. Hi, Steve. And also joining me is Tom Austin. He's a senior partner for Sierra Research, a consulting group for the Alliance of Automobile Manufacturers in Sacramento, California. Tom, hello. Hello, Steve. Now, Louise, the Union of Concerned Scientists has a model SUV that you guys have created, I guess really on the computer rather than reality. And you compare this to the Ford Explorer. What are the elements Mm -hmm. that you think uh, a Ford Explorer could reduce its emissions by by 40%?
4: Well, there we're talking about uh, making more engine changes and going from the type of engine that we have today where air and fuel are injected into a chamber and mixed prior to entering the cylinder um, to a direct injection engine. We further streamline the vehicle and we also add low rolling, we use low rolling resistance tires on the vehicle. We also do the six-speed transmission, but in this case you do a transmission without a torque converter. We've looked at making changes to the vehicle's air conditioning system as well. In the long term, what we've looked at doing is using a refrigerant in our air conditioning system that has a much lower global warming potential. So uh, in the case of our current refrigerant, we have a global warming potential of 1,300. Looking in the longer term, we could be using a refrigerant that still has a fairly high global warming potential, but is more in the order of 120. So it's 120 times as potent as carbon dioxide
0: Explain for me, please, how you can save fuel with uh, with tires.
4: Well, tires, when you move along the road, your tire has to overcome friction with the road. It also loses heat um, by the flexing of the sidewalls of your tire. It doesn't stay completely rigid. So tire companies have really been working hard to improve the materials of their tire to cut down on the losses both in the flexing of the sidewalls, which causes that heat loss, um, which is essentially loss of energy, and then cut down on the friction between the tire and the road. And this has nothing to do with how well your tire grips the road. It just has to do with how it's moving along the road. And so, for instance, Michelin has made a commitment to have the rolling resistance of most of their tires by 2020. So we're seeing great strides from tire companies in making these types of improvements in their tires.
0: And when you talk about streamlining the vehicle, car companies spend an awful lot of money on the design of that shape of that vehicle. It would cost them a lot of money, I would think, to make changes. What are you proposing that wouldn't cost that much money?
4: Well, when you redesign a vehicle, you're making changes to the body. For instance, when the Toyota Prius was redesigned from its first generation that was available here in the United States to the one that's currently available, the 2004, they reduced their drag coefficient by over 10% just in a redesign of the vehicle. And that's just in making it smoother, moving through the air more easily. Um, We've also seen great strides in SUVs, things like the Acura MDX, the Volvo XC90, um, the Lexus RX 330. These all are vehicles with very low drag coefficients. You know, making smarter decisions that will improve your aerodynamics in the design process is not going to cost a lot of money.
0: Okay, so at the end of the day, your vehicle that would reduce the prototypical Ford Explorer's emissions, greenhouse gas emissions, by 40% would cost car companies how much?
4: Um, We've looked at retail price increase, so we're looking at the cost to the consumer. And we come up with a cost of just under $2,000 for that type of a change. But I think it's important to point out that these are some of the most cost-effective emission reductions we can make. Many of these changes on the vehicle will actually result in less fuel usage, And so we're seeing that these technology changes, while you're paying more when you purchase your vehicle, will pay for themselves uh, over the life of a vehicle. For instance, the Ford Explorer, if the price increased by just under $2,000, you would make up that in reduced operating costs in just about three years.
0: All right. Tom Austin, let me turn to you now. You've looked at the Union of Concerned Scientists' uh, prototypical vehicle uh, claiming to have this 40 percent reduction. How much do you think it would cost uh, automobile manufacturers to make these changes? Just about twice what Louise
1: estimates. Uh, When we look at the technology that would actually be required to achieve a 40% reduction, we think the retail price is probably going to be about $4,000 higher. And that's because we have some fairly substantial differences in our estimates of how much it would cost, for example, to do an all-new transmission. The cost estimate that uh, is in Louise's estimates for this all-new transmission is essentially zero. And when you take a look at trying to do this in time to comply with these new standards that have just been adopted in California, there would have to be a lot of retooling. And we're going to be talking about several hundred dollars cost to do a modified transmission. I agree that the streamlining costs would be low. The problem there... Uh, manufacturers have known how to streamline vehicles for a long time, but they also know what sells. And there's a limit to where we can go with reducing the aerodynamic drag coefficient of vehicles. Uh, Vehicles with uh, boxier styling are selling better these days, and that's resulted in an increase in the aerodynamic drag coefficient of several models in recent years that are are selling quite well.
0: Now, the uh, automobile industry has to think about making some changes in order to meet the regulation that the California Air Resources Board is promulgating in the next twelve years. So which of the suggestions that Louise is making here might the industry feel comfortable responding to? Well how the industry
1: is going to respond is really unclear at this point. Uh, To a certain extent these new standards uh, for carbon dioxide emissions or greenhouse gas emissions in California I think are a replay of the electric vehicle mandate that was adopted in 1990. GM had developed the most advanced electric vehicle ever produced, uh, then called the IMPACT, later called the EV1, and the Air Resources Board passed a regulation essentially forcing 10% of all production to be electric vehicles by 2003. But when the reality of what the cost would be sunk in, the mandate had to be watered down. I think the same thing is going to happen with this mandate they've just passed for radically improving fuel economy. When the reality of the cost sinks in, I, I just can't see that this mandate is ever going to stand, assuming it passes a uh, court challenge. But Steve, ahead, I would please. just
4: like to add, you know, I think there's a stark difference between this regulation and the electric vehicle mandate, which is the electric vehicle mandate was, for zero emission vehicles was really dependent on making some technological breakthroughs and battery technology and getting those vehicles on the road. Those did not materialize. These regulations are based on technologies that are all currently available. Even when you look at some of the advanced technologies, we're already starting to see them in the marketplace. And so I think, you know, we've seen a pattern of this overestimation of cost and underestimation of potential from the industry. And I think there is a real difference with this regulation these technologies are available; they're in use. And what the Air Resources Board is really asking for is for these technologies to be put on vehicles.
0: Let's explore the middle ground, uh, Tom Austin. What do you think? Uh, what kinds of collaborations do you think could be struck with the environmental and regulatory communities on this question of greenhouse gases and cars?
1: Well, I think the real concern here is balkanization of uh, fuel economy standards. Uh, while it's true there's a law in California that says the Air Resources Board is supposed to set standards it's also true that there is a federal preemption for states adopting standards that are related to fuel economy my view is that the standard that's been adopted here in California is preempted and i think we're going to end up seeing a court step in and set it aside uh, there's no question there's going to continue to be development of fuel economy technology uh, there's going to be higher fuel economy vehicles in the future but i don't think we're going to end up seeing state by state Uh, terminations as to exactly what the level of fuel economy should be. So until the courts tell you you have to, you ain't going to. Well, if the courts end up uh, deciding that the California reg can stand, then obviously there's going to be compliance, but it's not going to be compliance uh, based on the assumptions that uh, Louise is talking about and that the Aerosources Board is talking about. There are going to be radical changes in the kind of vehicles that are made available for sale in California, and the public is not going to like it. Uh, Can you explain more? Well, when you take a look at what is the most cost-effective way to respond to this regulation, if it stays in place, there are going to have to be certain very popular models of vehicles that are withheld from the market. It is not going to be feasible for manufacturers to invest many thousands of dollars in meeting these standards with aggressive hybrid technology when they know full well that the public is not going to be willing to pay the price as a result, we're going to have some significant changes in the kind of cars that are available in California, and the public's not going to stand for it. And if for no other reason, that's why the regulation will eventually fall.
0: All right. We're just about out of time here, but fast forward again. The year 2016, somehow this question has been resolved between regulator and regulations and uh, and cars. And Could each of you describe the, the typical or the replacement SUV that you think would be on the road? Louise, I'll, I'll talk with you first.
4: Well, I think you know, hopefully we'll see a mixture of vehicles. I think we'll see vehicles such as the one we've discussed today with improved engine and transmission and other vehicle features. So we have a improved conventional technology vehicle. I think we're also going to see a large number of hybrid electric SUVs available. We're seeing them coming out on the market now. By 2016 there should be even more. And by 2016 we should be seeing some uh, fuel cell vehicles as well. So Hopefully, there will be a diverse mix of solutions out there in 2016.
1: Tom Austin? Well, I think that by 2016, if this regulation stays in place, we will see some new technologies on vehicles. There'll be more cylinder deactivation. There'll there'll be more variable valve lift and timing, but there'll be fewer large heavy vehicles. I would disagree about fuel cell vehicles. I don't think there is any chance that by 2016 we're going to have uh, any fuel cell vehicles in mass production. The cost of hydrogen is far beyond what, what uh, you often read it's, it's likely to be, and the cost of the vehicles themselves has not yet been brought anywhere close to what's
0: going to be commercially feasible. Louise Bedsworth is a vehicles analyst with the Union of Concerned Scientists in Berkeley, California. Tom Austin is senior partner for Sierra Research, a consulting group for the Alliance of Automobile Manufacturers in Sacramento, California. Thank you both for speaking with me today. Good talking. Thank you. you. Coming up, the morning after for many environmental advocates who gambled on the Democrats and lost. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Some of the country's largest environmental groups had hoped their issues would help defeat incumbent George Bush and elect John Kerry as president. Now, in the wake of a bruising partisan fight in which environmental issues were largely ignored by both the major presidential contenders, these groups are looking both at what went wrong and at a long four years on the outside. Living on Earth's Jeff Young has our report from Washington.
5: Back in January, League of Conservation Voters President Deb Callahan was confident President Bush's environmental record would so outrage people that they would vote him out of office.
2: It's going to be a sea change for the environmental movement this election, and I frankly think that the White House has wakened the sleeping giant, and it isn't very jolly.
5: Callahan's group spent $8 million to sound the alarm, but that environmental giant never really woke up. Not only did the president win, his party expanded its control in Congress. Sierra Club president Carl Pope, whose group spent $9 million in the election, says Senator Kerry should have made more of the issues. I would rather have seen John Kerry talk more about the environment, particularly about the connection between our vulnerability in the Middle East and the lack of an energy policy to break our addiction to oil. I thought that was a major theme he sounded early, He came back to it occasionally. He didn't really invest enough in it to break through that, and I'm not honestly sure whether he could have. Pope doubts the national media focus on Iraq and terrorism would have shifted. Defenders of Wildlife Action Fund president Roger Schlickheisen agrees. His group jumped into partisan politics for the first time this year, only to see its issues largely ignored.
0: I think this was an election that was determined primarily by fear. Uh, in fear of external events and especially terrorism. And environment and conservation and a host of other domestic issues uh, couldn't play against that.
5: So Senator Kerry did not win on the environment. But the LCV's Callahan says President Bush didn't either.
2: The presidential election nationally was not a referendum on the environment. And so I don't think that the Bush administration should take it as such in their second term. I don't believe that the people gave them a mandate to roll back and weaken environmental protections.
5: The administration, however, appears eager to put its new political power to work on environmental matters. Two days after the election, the president's top environment official, Environmental Protection Agency Administrator Michael Levitt, told reporters the vote was, quote, a validation of our philosophy and agenda conservationists and their counterparts in industry expect the administration to now pursue an aggressive agenda. And environmentalists like Callahan will have to decide between compromise and combat. In politics,
2: you always are looking for common ground. Uh, That said, the kinds of proposals that we've seen come forward from uh, both the congressional leadership and the White House in the last four years um, haven't been trying to meet us in the middle. So we'll, we'll look for compromise where we can. We're prepared to fight when we need to.
5: Callahan says conservation groups might cooperate on some parts of the energy bill, likely to return soon to Congress. But she pledges to fight any renewed attempts to open the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge to oil drilling. Schlickhuisen at Defenders of Wildlife heard a call for compromise in the president's acceptance speech and his desire to be a president for all Americans regardless of how they voted.
0: If he's going to be a president of all the people, he's got to take note of the fact that the vast majority of Americans out there care a lot about environmental protection and conservation. And hopefully he will have an opportunity now to show that in his policies in the second term. And they certainly weren't there in the first term.
5: Industry groups say the new political terrain compels environmentalists to reconsider some of those policies from the first term and think about market incentives instead of strict enforcement. Scott Siegel leads a power industry lobby called the Electric Reliability Coordinating Council. He points to two air quality items nearing completion, the administration's proposal to cut the mercury coming from power plants and its interstate air quality rule aimed at sulfur and nitrogen emissions. Siegel says both would reduce power plant pollution, though not in the way environmental groups prefer.
3: It'll be a real test for the environmental community to look with honesty and clarity at both the interstate proposal and the mercury proposal. If they still reject them on the fundamental basis that they're not circa 1980 command and control regulations, we'll know that they have not come to be constructive. And and that'll be too bad.
5: Environmentalists say those proposals would take decades to cut pollution that could be reduced much sooner through enforcement of existing law. The conservationists see one positive result of their unprecedented election year effort. By focusing on door-to-door canvassing instead of mass media advertising, they've reached a few million potential new conservation voters. They hope that network will help in the 2006 congressional elections and in state-level politics, where environmental issues enjoyed some attention and success, some of the few bright spots in an otherwise bleak election year for environmentalists. For Living on Earth, I'm Jeff Young in Washington.
0: One success story claimed by environmental groups in the elections unfolded in Colorado, where people said yes to more wind and renewable energy for the centennial state. Voters in several other states also had their say on environmental questions, and Living on Earth's Ingrid Lobet reports.
6: Let's start in Washington state. In a strong rejection of current federal policy, people there voted overwhelmingly to stop the Department of Energy from sending more radioactive waste to the Hanford Nuclear Reservation until the site is cleaned up. Residents await construction of a plant that will solidify millions of gallons of leaking radioactive liquid left over from Cold War bomb making. But meanwhile, the government has recently allowed more waste to be sent to the site, sometimes putting it in unlined dirt trenches.
7: People out here have said enough is enough.
6: Tom Carpenter is with the Seattle Office of the Government Accountability Project, a watchdog group. He tracks Department of Energy activities.
7: They don't have the authority that they once had to simply decide where waste goes and how it should be put into the ground or, or disposed of. We have some say-so as a state to mandate that they do dispose of waste in particular ways, in ways that are protective of the environment and certainly that comply with the law.
6: A spokesperson for the Department of Energy says it's studying options in light of Washington's vote. It is expected to sue the state. A federal court could well see this measure as an intrusion into the government's right and responsibility to manage a national problem. But Michael Robinson Dorn, who heads the environmental law clinic at the University of Washington, says the state could prevail.
1: It's going to be tough sledding. Courts are generally hostile to what they view are actions that impinge upon federal powers or that interfere with federal purposes or block the free flow of commerce. That said, if such a case uh, can win, and I believe it it can be won, uh, this case certainly presents
7: that case.
6: Moving over two states to the east, voters in Montana for the second time rejected a common method of mining gold that uses cyanide. Montana is the only state where cyanide leach mining is banned. One company in particular, Canyon Resources, wants to build such a mine there and put $3 million into reversing the ban. It had many backers, including local chambers of commerce and county farm bureaus, but voters forcefully said no, they'll keep their ban in place. In California, residents of Marin County decided to outlaw the planting of any genetically modified seed. That makes three California counties that now prohibit planting seeds whose genetic material has been altered in the laboratory. But Californians in two other counties where there's more agriculture voted to keep the door open to biotechnology. Jamie Johansson was one of them. He has 40 acres of olive trees and 20 cows in Butte County, California, and he says he hopes one day he'll be able to stop using chemicals against the olive fruit fly and use a biotech method instead.
0: What if we could put trees or a plant in our orchard, say three or four plants every acre, that attracted the fruit fly and handled them that way, instead of having direct contact with the food supply that that we provide to the to the consumer as far as pesticide use and all that. So it's that sort of dreaming that's going on in agriculture.
6: Nevertheless, activists in a dozen other California cities and counties are still working for GM bans or moratoria. Randy Cummins, director of the Organic Consumers Association, says too much is at stake for organic growers who don't want their fields contaminated by the natural drift of pollen from GM crops. Strategy, though, for the GM-free movement in the United States may be shifting away from bans, which can be locally divisive, and toward food labeling laws. Cummins is working on a proposal to require labels on all GM food in California.
7: The practical impact uh, we believe of having mandatory labeling pass in a large state like California uh, will be to basically cripple the industry because as in Europe... Uh, Large food corporations and supermarket chains are not going to be willing to sell genetically engineered foods or foods that have genetically engineered ingredients if they have to tell their consumers that this unpopular technology is part of their product line.
6: And finally in this election, voters came out for hunter's rights in four states, Alaska, Montana, Maine, and Louisiana. Alaskans and Mainers affirmed the right of bear hunters to use treats to lure bears to traps. And Montana and Louisiana overwhelmingly passed measures to enshrine in their state constitutions the right to fish and hunt. They joined seven other states that have made similar preemptive moves to protect hunters in anticipated clashes with wildlife authorities and animal rights activists. For Living on Earth, I'm Ingrid Lobet.
0: Millions of gallons of municipal wastewater are released into the nation's rivers every day. Although most of it is filtered and treated to remove impurities, some pollutants still flow into waterways downstream. Researchers in Colorado have been looking at fish populations downstream of Denver and Boulder. In two waterways, the South Platte River and Boulder Creek, the scientists have made some surprising discoveries, which they attribute to estrogenic compounds contained in the wastewater. David Norris is the head of the research team. He teaches at the University of Colorado and joins us now from Boulder. Uh, So, Professor Norris, tell me, what exactly have you found in the fish populations of the South Platte and Boulder Creek?
8: Well, upstream from the sewage treatment plants, um, what we've noticed is a relatively normal sex ratio uh, of roughly one-to-one, males-to-females, and a mixture of adult and juvenile fishes, and we don't find any intersex fish. Downstream, we find... Many more females than males, uh, roughly 10 to 1. And among the juveniles, uh, we find a number of intersex fish.
0: Now, intersex, what do you mean by that?
8: Intersex is a situation where you find both uh, egg-forming tissue and you find sperm-forming tissue in the same organ.
0: That sounds like a mess downstream.
8: Well, we were quite uh, alarmed uh, to see the amount of disruption in the downstream fish. Uh, When we first saw the intersex fish, um, we were sort of excited because we had hypothesized that they would be there based on what we knew was in the water and what we knew from laboratory studies and the studies uh, elsewhere. And uh, we were just uh, surprised at how much disruption there was.
0: How long have you been looking at Boulder Creek and South Platte River?
8: Uh, We started about three years ago um, looking at the at the fish because of the reports of estrogens in the water, um, both in the South Platte and in Boulder Creek. And in reference to studies that have been reported in England, where below uh, sewage effluents, usually mixtures of industrial and domestic sewage, they have found intersex fishes.
0: What exactly are the sources of these, these compounds that, that lead to the, the, these intersex fish?
8: Uh, many of these come from uh, plastics. Nonophenol is, is one of the most estrogenic ones, and it's used in uh, the softer plastics to uh, make them more flexible. Mm-hmm. And uh, But we know that these compounds uh, can leach out of the plastic containers. Uh, for example, culture dishes uh, used to culture breast cancer cells were discovered to actually activate those breast cancer cells. The... Um, Compounds like uh, bisphenol A uh, come from your polycarbonate plastics. And this particular compound is also found in in dental sealants, which are used quite a bit with children. Um, And uh, they're used to uh, line metal cans uh, that we uh, put food in. And we know from a number of studies that these compounds leak out of these plastics and uh, can produce estrogenic effects on organisms.
0: Now, if if these estrogenic uh, compounds are are in the water um, and there, there's an effect on people, what's going on for the folks who are downstream from these sewage treatment plants that you've you've looked at in in, in Boulder Creek and uh, in the Platte River? There, uh, there must be some cities and towns that take their water from that river
8: there are quite a number of them i would guess and i imagine that as you go further downstream you're you're having more and more people dumping in and as well as taking out and uh i think that we uh should be concerned about more downstream um the the fact that we're seeing intersex fishes in boulder creek for example we're pretty far upstream uh people come to colorado and the mountains uh, because they expect really clean water and it's already uh, fairly well contaminated and this is a domestic source. We're not looking at industrial sources here. Um, it's primarily what uh, I and other residents of of Boulder are, are choosing to do every day, what detergents we're using, personal care products, things of this sort, and then we're dumping them down the drain.
0: Now, with these estrogenic compounds that wind up in the water, what, what can be done about this? Uh, how easy is it to remove this stuff from the water?
8: Well, apparently the technology exists, uh, through filtration and reverse osmosis, that we could remove these materials. But uh, to retrofit uh, every sewage treatment plant uh, would be an expensive proposition, at least, to to begin with, uh, So, uh, as well as it will take time. But we have the technology that we could be returning perfectly clear water back into the river.
0: So what would you say are, are really the most significant aspects of... Of the of the data that you're coming up with in the fish populations there,
8: well, I th- I think there are certainly important questions related to the fish themselves and and the ecosystem. But I think a more important question is the fact that this is not an isolated phenomenon. Uh, it's probably occurring all over the country, and because of the additive nature of these chemicals and the many multiple sources. Uh, That especially the populations that are downstream that are recycling this water in this material are at risk.
0: David Norris teaches at the Department of Integrative Physiology at the University of Colorado in Boulder. Thanks for taking this time with me today. You're welcome. Just ahead, move over Sam Spade and the Maltese Falcon for a new breed of real-life detective stories, starting with an EPA cop and the cyanide canary. First, this environmental health note from Jennifer Chu.
9: People typically take vitamins to improve their health, but when it comes to the popular supplement vitamin E, a group of researchers have found that too much of a good thing might be bad. Scientists at Johns Hopkins University reviewed a number of clinical trials into the effects of vitamin E. What they found was that people taking more than 400 international units of the supplement every day had higher rates of mortality than those taking a lesser dose or none at all. An international unit is roughly equivalent to a milligram. Previous studies suggested that vitamin E could help prevent ailments such as heart disease and cancer. But the current study posted this week on the Annals of Internal Medicine website finds that such high doses of the supplement might actually encourage the onset of disease. Scientists say high doses of vitamin E may act as a pro-oxidant in the body and can damage proteins, DNA, and other health-regulating functions. This could leave people more susceptible to illness. Based on the study's findings, researchers advise people to avoid high doses of vitamin E until more research is completed. That's this week's Environmental Health Note. I'm Jennifer Chu.
0: And you're listening to Living on Earth.
9: Support for NPR comes from
3: NPR stations and Ford, maker of the Escape Hybrid, a full hybrid SUV able to run on electric power alone at certain speeds. FordVehicles.com backslash environment. The Noyce Foundation, dedicated to improving math and science instruction from kindergarten through grade 12. The Annenberg Fund for Excellence in Communications and Education. And the Kellogg Foundation, helping people help themselves by investing in individuals, their families, and their communities. On the web at wkkf.org. This is NPR, National Public Radio.
0: It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. On August 27, 1996... 20-year-old Scott Dominguez went to work as he'd done every day for the previous two years at Evergreen Resources. This was a plant in Soda Springs, Idaho, that converted mining waste into fertilizer. What would happen in the next four hours would forever change Scott's life and would place him in the middle of a groundbreaking criminal case. Joe Hildorfer not only chronicled this story, he was part of it. A former FBI agent, he's now a special agent for the Environmental Protection Agency based in Seattle. He co-authored a book called The Cyanide Canary, a story of injustice. One man caused it, one man fought it, one man's life was destroyed by it. Joe Hildorfer joins me now from KUOW in Seattle. Joe, could you first describe the situation that Scott entered into the day he told his fiance that he was afraid to go to work? In August
7: of 1996, he was working at a plant called Evergreen Resources, Almost all the employees I interviewed over the course of a two- or three-year investigation didn't call the place Evergreen Resources. They called it Everdeath, and that was because so many of the employees suffered terrible injuries there. Uh, Scotty was working there on August 26th of 1996, and he was ordered uh, to go into this tank. The tank was rusted like almost everything there. It was about 36 feet long. 11 feet high, and the only way into this, what turned out to be a death chamber, was a small aperture, kind of like a manhole at the top of the tank. There was no safety equipment, so they used an old ladder, picked up the ladder, and climbed into the hole uh, the night before Scotty was hurt. The reason for them doing this was the owner, Alan Elias, a millionaire from uh, Hollywood, California, ordered them into the tank to clean out the tons of sludge that was at the bottom of it, about knee deep. The reason he wanted it cleaned out was he had railroad cars stacked up against the plant plant with sulfuric acid, and he wanted to have the tank cleaned and put the acid into the tank. Scotty and another young man by the name of Darren Weaver uh, had a difficult time breaking up this sludge. They worked in there for just, oh, five minutes or so, on the night before the terrible event that occurred the next day, Scotty went home. Uh, even though he was this uh, outdoorsman and avid at- athlete, uh, his fiance Teresa Cole told me and my partner Bob Voynich he sat on his couch that night. He could barely move. He was lethargic. There just wasn't some, There was something terribly wrong going on in his body. But when he went back to uh, the plant that next day. He was terribly frightened to go into that tank, but he was ordered to do so.
0: So he goes into the tank, and what happens next?
7: He goes into the tank. He's in there about 30 minutes with uh, Darren. They have a fire hose and uh, Rod's trying to break up the sludge. Uh, All of a sudden, uh, Scotty turns to Darren in this black uh, tank. They can barely see each other, but he says to Darren, I can't breathe. Darren feels himself being overwhelmed by something he didn't know what. He runs up the ladder, falls off the top as he screams to Brian and Jean. Probably the only good thing that may have happened that day was the truly heroic efforts by the co-employees and uh, the volunteer fire department in Soda Springs. They each risked their lives going into the tank. They would put Scotty over their shoulder and carry him through this knee-deep sludge The last time Brian Smith got out of the tank, he caught a whiff of bitter almonds. He managed to get to the top of the tank, and he fell off, ran to the trailer, called for the fire response. Darren Schwartz, the incident commander, got there, as did the owner, Alan Elias. Amazingly, according to both Schwartz and his uh, other lead fireman that day, Matt Christiansen, they never came across at any accident scene before someone as uncooperative as Al and Elias. They repeatedly asked him what was in the tank. Elias continued to maintain there was nothing in the tank but sludge and water. They finally cut a three-foot hole. Two of the firemen, one being John Storr, climb into the tank, and he screams out, oh, my God, he's alive, he's alive.
0: What was the extent of damage that he had to his body?
7: The problem I've come to learn with cyanide poisoning is it binds with uh, your mitochondria, and you can no longer use oxygen. As time continues to go by, this young man's brain is eating itself. There were a number of holes uh, in the basal ganglia portion of his brain, uh, which is a specific injury for cyanide poisoning. He has serious difficulty speaking, uh, moving, But inside there is someone trapped, and that's probably the worst thing. He knows what happened to him and what was taken away from him.
0: Scotty Dominguez is in a hospital, and at what point do you get involved with this story?
7: Well, I was involved the next day, uh, and that's when I came and interviewed Al and Elias, and we started the criminal investigation. It wasn't until March of the following year, though, until I met Scott, after he got out of a long uh, rehabilitation in a clinic in Salt Lake City.
0: When you met Alan Elias, what did he tell you had happened at his plant?
7: Mr. Elias told me he had a tank cleaning operation going on, uh, that he had all the safety equipment that anyone could ever think of needing. He said he ordered uh, one of his employees to do a confined space permit. He ordered the employees to do this one buy the book as safe as possible, even though he thought the material in the tank was as safe as shampoo. But he said the only reason anyone got hurt that day, and he was almost in a rage when he expressed this, he said it was because there was no managing of stupidity and you just can't account for the actions of stupid employees. What made Mr. Elias such a difficult defendant to investigate and prosecute, he was always one step ahead of us he would manufacture evidence, uh, and he got to our most important witness, Darren Weaver, and got him to submit an affidavit, which changed Weaver's earlier story to the state police, blaming the problem on Scott and the other employees.
0: So when does it finally come out that there is cyanide in this tank?
7: It comes out the next day when I talk to Elias, but the problem is going to prove that Mr. Elias knew there was cyanide in the tank and didn't, in fact, test it, uh, as he said he did, for the presence of cyanide. If Mr. Elias would have tested it for cyanide at a legitimate uh, lab, he would have had a strong defense as far as having the mental intent to commit this terrible crime. Of course, Mr. Elias didn't give us his lab results. Bob Voynich and I tracked down uh, the lab somewhere in Salt Lake City, uh, the owner of the lab, Kyle Schick, said, yes, you're correct. Mr. Elias did send us a sample before those young men went into the tank, but Mr. Elias had it tested for one thing, and that was silver content. Once it didn't have silver, he had the waste buried.
0: So, in fact, it never had been tested?
7: No, uh, not until after the EPA does their search first search warrant. He knows he's in the crosshairs of an investigation, and then... He sends another sample, after the fact, to the same lab, and for a lousy 50 bucks, they test it for cyanide, and it has tremendous levels of cyanide in it.
0: Now, so far, what you've described to me sounds like pretty much an open and shut case. A man goes into a place unprotected by safety equipment, uh, becomes deathly ill as a function of that. It turns out that there is, in fact, a hazardous material in this tank. It seems that this has all happened in violation of the law. And yet, uh, I gather from your story, it wasn't open and shut.
7: Why? There never seems to be, especially in a high-profile case, an open and shut matter when it comes to the prosecution of an environmental crime. The bare-bone element you need to prove in one of our cases for a dumping case is that the waste is a hazardous waste. Uh, We obtained a sample from the site when I met Mr. Elias that day, we had it tested by the EPA lab. Shockingly, the test results came back that it didn't designate as a hazardous waste.
0: Wait wait, wait a second. You're saying you test this stuff, it comes back, and it doesn't test as hazardous waste, and yet this guy's in the hospital near death? How do you figure that?
7: I couldn't figure it, and I was beside myself, and without being able to prove that this was a hazardous waste, there was no case. What I came to learn, and the reason we managed to get this into a courtroom, the preeminent scientist in the United States for environmental matters is the chief deputy scientist for the EPA, Dr. Joe Larry. He told me that when the government wrote up the regulations for how to test cyanide-bearing waste for the mining industry, it was called HSW 846 Basically, they got the decimal point wrong. And he said, no matter how high you could have pure sodium cyanide, you could have pure sulfuric acid, and you still would never have the waste designate under this faulty test as hazardous.
0: So the law doesn't say it's hazardous waste, this particular amount, and yet obviously the effect is hazardous. So to bring this case, you have to prove that the law is wrong.
7: We had to prove that the EPA law was faulty, and the only way uh, we had a chance of convincing a federal judge that this was a death chamber was Dr. Lowry used a small sample of sludge I received from Mr. Elias. He made a scale model of that tank. He mimicked the conditions in that tank that faced Scotty and his employees that day, and he extrapolated backwards to show how deadly that atmosphere was.
0: Okay, there you are with your expert witness devising a model, really, to show how deadly this is. And Mr. Elias had some of the best uh, counsel, lawyers, that he c- could buy, I'm sure. How did you bring this forward in, in, in court?
7: Like any case, we have to bring in uh, witnesses. The employees that worked there, particularly uh, Darren and Jean. Not only were they incredibly brave men on the day of the accident, and it really wasn't an accident, but they uh, basically gave up their jobs at Evergreen, came in the court, and they told of the horrific working conditions that were there. We tracked on employees that worked there over the years. All of them told us of the dismal working conditions. And based on their testimony and Dr. Lowry's analysis of it, we managed to get the case to a jury in Idaho.
0: What happens when you go in front of the jury?
7: The jury really riveted on the testimony of the witnesses. The most powerful witness in that case, Uh, it's something I'll never forget, Scott Dominguez had the courage to come in the court. He managed to confront Elias and the jury was only at four hours before they returned a guilty verdict on all counts.
0: So the jury finds uh, Mr. Elias guilty? Yes. What does the judge do?
7: Both of our prosecutors argued strongly for incarceration that night. Uh, the judge says, no. Mr. Elias turns the justice system on its head. He hires a new dream team of appellate uh, attorneys. They manage to get a number of the charges thrown out of court. And then? I fly back, as do our prosecutors, in March. This is 1999. The day before uh, Mr. Elias is sentenced, the judge reinstates the charges, and we have one of the most amazing sentences that I've ever witnessed in my life. And that was? Uh, Judge Windmill sentenced Alan Elias to 17 years, the longest sentence imposed in the history of environmental crimes.
0: So the law has the wrong levels for uh, cyanide as hazardous waste. What progress, if any, have you been able to make to get that regulation fixed, uh, to move the decimal point to the right place?
7: From day one, uh, when this injury occurred, Dr. Lowry was immediately aware of it. He was working for years to change this law, and he used this case to force the changes through both the EPA and uh, the legislative bodies.
0: How does this uh, case set precedent in environmental law?
7: It set precedent in a number of ways. It made a big difference uh, with the length of of the sentence. It shows that if we treat environmental crimes like other crimes, there's uh, real consequences for the defendants in our case. It made a tremendous difference to my fellow EPA CID agents across the country We suffer far more defeats than we have victories because it is hard to convince everyone, from the prosecutors to the jury to the judge, that our crimes are real crimes. It was a morale boost uh, to my fellow agents.
0: Joe Hildorfer is a special agent for the Environmental Protection Agency based in Seattle, co-author of a book with Robert Dugoni called The Cyanide Canary, A Story of Injustice. One man caused it, one man fought it, one man's life was destroyed by it. Joe, thanks for taking this time with me today.
7: Thank you very much, Steve. It was great to tell our story. ¶¶
0: Coming soon on Living on Earth, the Greeks, the Romans, and the Ottomans are just a few of the civilizations that have occupied the ancient city of Butrint, Albania, over the past 3,000 years. That makes Butrint an archaeological treasure to be preserved for posterity and prosperity.
3: It's no point of having a dead museum here where just you buy a ticket, go walk in and walk out. This should be a living place where people can live and they can profit from the heritage without destroying it
0: sharing and protecting a nation's legacy, coming up on Living on Earth. And remember, you can hear us anytime and get the stories behind the news by going to livingonearth.org. That's livingonearth.org. We take you now to Kali Vrisi, a village in the mountains of northern Greece for the festival of Babou Stephen Feld recorded the event, which features a procession of men and boys costumed in heavy bells. Earth is produced for the World Media Foundation by Chris Ballman, Christopher Bolick, Eileen Belinsky, Jennifer Chu, and Susan Shepard, with help from Carl Lindemann and Kelly Cronin. Our interns are Jenny Cecil Moore, Jen Goodman, and Steve Gregory. Special thanks to Ernie Silver. Our technical director is Paul Wabreck. Allison Dean composed our themes. Al Avery runs our website. You can find us at livingonearth.org. Environmental sound art courtesy of Earth
3: Earth.
0: I'm Steve Kerwin. Thanks for listening.
3: Funding for Living on Earth comes from Ford, maker of the Escape Hybrid SUV, uniting SUV versatility with environmental responsibility. Details at FordVehicles.com. The National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science. And Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and more. Women of Inspiration speak at the Stonyfield Strong Women programs, taking place in Boston, New York, and Washington, D.C. Details at Stonyfield.com. Support also comes from NPR member stations and the Ford Foundation for reporting on U.S. environment and development issues and the Town Creek Foundation.
5: This is NPR, National Public Radio.